in there we're almost a month into 2024 mm-hmm. feeling it's, it's still the two of us do you think people are sick of us yet <laughs> they <laughs> wish, cannot be kate was back <laughs> you know kate has very important things to do mm-hmm. i think it's out in the world so it's not a secret that she has been on maternity leave so we'll be coming back soon ish mm-hmm. no rush yeah we collectively had a baby so. yes it is the first atx tv baby and we all take ownership of her. Yeah. I'm just kidding. If Kate, Kate, if you're listening to this, we did not all have the baby. You had the baby. Good work. <laughs> and she is little and she is beautiful and she is perfect. Yep. Congratulations. Yep. To all of us for having this baby. Can't wait to have the baby at the next festival. Oh my gosh. It's, it's going to be, be crazy. an adventure. <gasps> I just can't wait to see like... All the random people, when I say random people that we know, that are carrying her around at different venues in different places. And half the time, Kate's not going to know where she is. She's going to be very well protected and with someone that loves her. But Every second, but we may just not know who that is at nope. that exact moment. Nope. <laughs> There's going to be a schedule. There's going to be a baby schedule for yeah. who gets her at certain times. Yeah. I don't know how to segue from that, except it's just you and me holding down the fort. Yep. All the programming to come. For 2024, we've yep. got this. Talking about gay stuff. Talking about gay stuff, which, <laughs> you know, good segue into this panel, which was such a great panel. Mm-hmm. I'm very proud of all of the programming that comes out of the festival. And I think our conversations that we host are insightful and entertaining and educational and all of those things. This is a really special group of people that you put together. Yeah, I mean, this group of panelists is incredible. I will give a fair amount of credit to our our partners um, at USG and Fox because USG, well, backing up for a second, um, we we always try to be as inclusive as we can in terms of, you know, uh, LGBTQ plus representation, not just like those specific conversations, but just across programming. And it always feels, it's always something that I'm like hyper aware of in terms of how it's included. And when, when we have those standalone conversations and what the focus of those are, because, you know, it's 2024 and we all know that there's not enough queer representation still and that you know lgbtq plus forward shows are still getting canceled left and right but i emphatically do not want to keep having the same conversation over and over i don't want to just keep having the very generic like we need queer representation conversation like we know we know that and especially i don't want to have that conversation over and over for queer people including myself because like we are tired of having that conversation and hearing that conversation and then nothing really changing. I'm always thinking about that when we're putting these things together and, you know, looking for who do we ask, who's moderating, you know, what are the shows we have represented? What are we trying to say? And so 
we were in the middle of trying to, you know, figure out like what it felt like there needed to be um, a standalone conversation this year that really focused on this topic, but we didn't quite know what the shape of it was yet. And our partners at Universal Studio Group came to us and very openly, you know, were like, we had already confirmed um, a few of these panelists for for their panel, Funny AF, you know, and they very kindly and supportively were like, hey, you know, we have, uh, these panelists would like to speak, you know, on this topic. If there's anything that you have coming up, like, please keep them in mind. We really like took a moment and thought about who these panelists were and what we wanted to say about TV in this moment. It's very easy to go a little negative because I tend to have a lot of frustration on this front, which everyone on the team is aware of because I don't know. I've ranted about it, ranted about it occasionally. Okay. Good rant. A good rant is necessary um, at times. But I think it's, it's very easy to like kind of sink into that feeling and uh, I think this version of it was really talking about like is really more focused on what what is what is going right um and but at the same time is still a very like these panels are very honest about their personal experiences yeah. in this space and how they each are like fighting for their own work to reflect certain things and what they want to see on television. Um, and I think that is maybe a more productive conversation yeah. than, than the one had out of frustration. Um, even though I still think, you know, occasionally those rants are warranted and like that frustration is there for a reason. And there are still a lot of things that need to change. I think from this conversation, you know, it's clear that like these, these panelists are, are doing that it's great to have an opportunity to like put them sort of front and center and give them the stage and have somebody like Mo mm -hmm. moderate who is, you know, incredibly thoughtful in this area and is also, I would say a very like active presence in terms of representation and like um, instigating these conversations in a good way. But yeah, they're also just really <laughs> fucking funny and smart. They're so funny. Um, they're and, so fun to listen to. <laughs> uh, and they're all very good looking, which I feel like they would appreciate me saying. Um, <laughs> but yeah, they're they're just like lovely people and they're incredible actors and writers and, you know, activists. And so I think this is just one that was really, turned out really fun. I think for myself, sometimes I live in a bit of a bubble where most of the shows that I'm watching do have queer, does ha do have queer representation, mm -hmm. like, and it is done with respect and love. And uh, I don't realize that in my little bubble that is full of it, that there's so much outside of my bubble that does not have any sort of representation or has bad representation mm -hmm. in it. And I forget that until we have these conversations and I'm like, Oh, there's so much TV out there and there's so many places these stories are not being told. 
or they're being told wrong or they're being told by people that shouldn't be telling them. And I don't mean that in a there's another big conversation about like who can write what and what that looks like. But I do think that sometimes people that are not writing what they are, what they identify as, they're writing a different sort of character, do not treat those characters with the same love and respect and authenticity. And so I think anyone can write anything, but you have to like take such care and really take note of people from these different communities. And not everyone does that. And I think they talk about that some on this panel and just like what that love and care looks like and how important that is. And so I feel like I feel fortunate to watch enough shows where that is taken into account, but know that there's so many out there. And especially in the history of TV, there's a lot that's lacking. Yeah. But I do think that there are some great shows um, as some people know, our members know that I've been rewatching The Fosters. Mm-hmm. What a beautiful show. What a beautiful show full of beautiful representation across the board. Because they talk some on this panel of like just having the one person that represents all of one group of people. Yeah. And that you can have many different people. And there's a whole spectrum of different characters to be told. And I think like The Fosters does that really well. Mm-hmm. And then one of my other all-time favorite shows the short-lived faking it Mm -hmm. in the teen representation category of all the different types of relationships and characters are the ones that I thought of like the first shows that I really remember watching where that love and care was taken into account for all these characters. But also like finding the humor in all of it. Yes. Like not not being overly self-serious in a way that like I love the Fosters so deeply but that is like a very serious show most of the time. I mean, it has, it has moments of levity, yeah. but, like, it is also nice to, like, kind of laugh at the absurdity of it all, you know? And, yes. like, the labeling and, and, and all of that. And I think faking it, like, I think our barometer for what we feel comfortable joking about or not joking about is always going to be changing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that show is really good about... Um, being able to like have a laugh while still like respecting yeah the people that it was um trying to include so yeah I really I really enjoy that one um another one Dickinson which Ugh. I think is just yes I'm still talking about Dickinson everyone uh, we will talk Sorry. about Dickinson till the end of time um, continue on but yeah I just and and also because it's like. I think that show is so smart about letting like the, the poetry really speak for itself. And in a way that like it's, has always been pretty obviously queer, but wasn't acknowledged until in that way until fairly recently. I mean, Elena Smith was so smart about how that story was told, you know, in a fairly contemporary way, but still being like very true to the poetry and who she was and, the limitations of her life at that time. But yeah, I think that's another great one. And obviously a league of their own, um, which I'm just going to be mad about forever. You know what? Uh, you can just sit on that hill. Yeah. Be mad. We will all join you there. Yep. Um, but yeah, just a perfect one season of just, man, I don't know. Watching that show was just a whole experience. Um, and I'm really glad it existed, even if it was unfortunately short-lived. But, yeah, I mean, I think there's lots of 
there's lots of great shows out there and they they talk about a lot of them on this panel as well um and obviously like i mean joel wrote and starred in fire island as well Mm -hmm. which is also one of my favorite recent like queer films um, i loved that movie it's just another one that is really yes. good at not taking itself too seriously yep yep and um, for it and man he is so smart and funny and just incredible on this panel but yeah i mean this this really can't and then uh you know fox is is always a another partner that's great in this mm-hmm. space and very supportive of their you know lgbtq plus talent and stories and and we've been very lucky to have brian michael smith before and would love to have him anytime he wants to come. every year just just an incredible person and actor um so yeah it was really fun to get this group together and hear them all sort of bounce off of each other and also say like really insightful powerful things so okay i love it well with that here is Queer Stories We Want to See, moderated by Mo Ryan of Vanity Fair. Enjoy. Um, I want to get right to it, and thank you all for coming. Uh, the panelists today are amazing, and I just want to let them talk because they're the best. So first up, Caitlin Stacy, come on down. Among Caitlin's credits, Class of 07, Mayans MC, Rain, Please Like Me, the film Smile. Welcome. Thank you. I didn't realize you'd all be kind of beneath me. Yeah, so yeah. I have to hike my spanks up a lot. <laughs> We're going to be modest or attempt it, at least for the first 10 minutes. Look at myself in that mirror the whole time. Nice. <laughs> Jerry Johnson of Harlem and Good Trouble. Welcome. Utilize your resources. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, Joel Kim Booster, writer, producer, if you don't know who. <laughs> Fire Island, loot, search party, everything you like. It, Joel has been part of it. Yeah. Um, that's basically the deal. Brian Michael Smith, actor, director, producer. 9 11 Ro- Lone Star. doing that let's keep doing that yeah thank you all for being here i'm so excited and i you know my thing here is i want you to have a good time and i want everyone here to have a good time so i want to hear you talk um i this is sort of a two-parter and anyone can jump in whether it's a prod i I was thinking a project you've been part of or a project you haven't been part of where you know the title of the panel i'm being really obvious but like what's a queer character where you're like, that's it. That's, I'm responding to that, whether you were in that part of that project or not part of that project. Where were some where you had a moment of recognition, if that has been a, a thing you have encountered? There's this new show on, um, I think it's on Prime Video called Harlem, and there's this character. <laughs> Tell me more. Yeah, named uh, Ty, Ty, I think Taisha. <laughs> May Reynolds. Um, and I really feel connected to her, really. Um, just Why being is that? a boss. 
Um, she's beautiful, funny. I just, I mean, I don't know if you all saw it, but it's like, I'm like, wow. I don't think I've ever seen someone as beautiful on screen. And I resonate with that being, you know, I, come, I came out as uh, beautiful earlier this year. <laughs> and so I'm just- So brave, so brave, so, so brave. I was like holding it for so, so long. So proud of you. Thank you. But I just had to just do it. You and had to speak your truth. Yeah, yeah, I broke the internet a few times. <laughs> and so, yeah, I just feel really connected to, um, and I've never seen a character like that. So, yeah. Anybody else? Anybody else? Um, I feel like in 2015, I was at New Fest, and the very first time I saw a black trans man character um, was in this movie called Black is Blue by Cheryl Dunyer. Oh, yes. And it, yes. I, I mean, like, I had seen um, Laverne Cox on Orange is the New Black, and that had really given me some, like, hope about, you know, being able to be a fully authentic, truthful trans character. And um, seeing her, her backstory told in such a way that was authentic and powerful gave me power, you know, in of myself to feel like, okay, I can continue on my path. I can be an actor. I, I don't have to shave off parts of myself and uh, hide parts of myself to, you know, to really do what it, I feel like I'm meant to do. But it wasn't until I saw just this black trans man living his life in such an authentic way in such a, a beautiful story. And it was like, it was a short film, but that really kind of like set my feet in the right direction and like just let confirm that, hey, I'm on my path and I'm just going to continue, you know, doing what I need to do. And it was like a really, really powerful experience for me. I'm having a lot of trouble, actually, with this question, which I, I think I is part you of might. the problem. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I, there's a movie called Happy Together um, that is a, uh, yes, a, a, an incredible movie, and it's a love story between two Asian men. And um, that I remember seeing quite um, when I was in high school, and that really, it was the first time I'd seen someone who looked like me and was like me, uh, two Asian men together, too. And unfortunately, I think that I saw that over a decade ago, and I haven't really seen anything similar to that um, since. And so, uh, yeah, it's it's difficult. I think that's why we are doing, that's sort of why we do what we do up here is to sort of, you know, create more and get that out there. Yeah. I, I feel similarly in the way that, like, I, I think white women have been represented, you know, pretty much constantly and, and objectified throughout film constantly. But it was tough to really find, like, Lesbians. <laughs> and I was always like, lesbians kissing, lesbians going, holding hands. Um, and the first time I ever really remember seeing two women together on screen was the, um, the music video for All the Things She Said by Tattoo. <laughs> and I literally was like, ah, on the screen. <laughs> In my grandma's living room. Yes. It was pretty, and then I would just keep watching it until I wanted to, like, I felt so hungry for, um, well, <clears throat> and, and for the content. <laughs> Go on. For the content, yeah, like, I, you know, I was seeing people who looked like me, but I didn't see, like, the relationships that I wanted to be a part of, and so now it feels very different. I think we're really good at showing queer, not really good, but, like, I think queer women are getting a bit more of a sort of, like, burst on TV, you know no what I mean? No pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> yes. More sexual satisfaction, <laughs> the study show. Um, but yeah, I still think we've got a long way to go in terms of showing like bisexual men and queer men and like all that kind of fluidity throughout there. Yeah. I will say, speaking of Cheryl Dunier, um, when I was in undergrad, she has a film called uh, The Watermelon Woman. And 
It was the first time, one, that I saw a black queer woman. And it was just like, it really wasn't about her being like a queer woman. It was like about her finding this story about this older black queer woman. Um, and then her like, falling in love and like it felt like everybody in the movie was queer and so it just felt like kind of a queer utopia discovery film and um this was the first time that i had seen that especially with the black woman being in control of the story and and telling the story that never happens almost never yes especially in film it's so interesting too because i i think because there's there is such a, a lack of representation specific representation and queer people especially are so trained i think to find their own experiences and the experiences of others like i i i think that's why like gay men love like women so much is that i i find like a lot of the like representation or like the things that made me feel seen growing up um, and even now as an adult, like are oftentimes not even queer movies or something like, like I'll watch like Death Becomes Her and I'll be like, yes, that's it. Yes. Um, oh my God, I love that And movie. it's like, it, it's so, it's so weird, but I think it's because uh, at least people of our generation, I don't want to age any of you up here. I'm old, but. Um, 17. I'm so old. You yeah. have no idea. I've had so much work done. <laughs> but it is just like, it, you, you, you are not, you're so not used to seeing yourself that you just have to find it in like little grains of like, you know, Goldie Hawn performances growing up. Um, and that's what you do. Someone, um, you know, I, I can't remember who said it, but someone said that um, queer audiences are nomads. Like they just, everyone's like the word goes out and it's like, we're, we're, we're watching this now because there's one, there's one queer person, there's one trans person, you know, like they, like they will go from show to show and tell like, and it's like, what makes me um, furious about that is that people go from show to show only to watch that character, you know, quite often get killed off, um, be, you know, just basically a tragedy porn character. And, you know, I'm, it's not that the, you know, the, com the struggles of the community should be reflected, but they should be authentic and specific. And that's not what happens a lot still. Well, and that problem, that actually causes a lot of resentment, I think, in our community, too, towards the one show or movie that we get, you know, because that one show or movie is then asked to represent a huge tent, a huge spectrum of experiences. And it's no one show or movie is going to do that. And so I think, like, you know, queer audiences are being told like this is for you this is for you and it's like well it's not for all of us or it shouldn't be for all of us and and it's not going to be for all of us and then you you get frustrated but if you don't support it you're disloyal exactly right. yeah. yeah i also would to, to to your point about um queer men and like women i do think too like there was a time where all these queer icons were like just these badass women who were living their life who weren't even queer, like Grace Jones and like all those folks. And it's something about that like freedom and liberation and breaking the barriers that I think queer people are attracted to. But a lot of time, I mean, recently we've gotten a lot more like queer artists who are more in the forefront, but like Beyonce is a queer icon and that's a cishet woman with children and a husband, mm -hmm. you know? But there's something about, especially this new album, uh, there's something about like us wanting to feel spoken to, uh, you know, or wanting to like the feeling of wanting to break free that a lot of times doesn't come from a camel's mouth. Is that a thing? <laughs> it is now. It is now, Jerry. Write that down. 
the camel's mouth. You heard it here first. Didn't come from the camel's mouth. Jerry's new podcast, The Camel's Mouth. Right. Coming to Earwolf. Please subscribe. You know, Andrew, uh, the director of Fire Ireland, he said a phrase that I wish I had worked into. Oh, God, I'm going to do it. I'm going to talk about my book just briefly. Like the, I wanted to work in the phrase he... In one of his interviews, rep sweats, he called it. Rep, representational sweats. Like, because there is these... Like, there's immense pressure to... Okay, build a well-rounded character, build a world around those characters, ideally multiple characters, ideally multiple queer people who are different from each other and identifiable and, you know, authentic and specific. Also, don't piss off anyone in the community. It's like, that's not a fair ask. Well, and the thing is, is that straight people, like, there are so many, there, everything is for you um and and so it's very easy to see, see something and go oh that's not for me move on to the next whereas we for us because we're being told like this is for you there's nowhere else to go you know like i had a lot of people who saw my movie who were like i fucking hate rom-coms and i was like well then you shouldn't have watched my movie but th they they felt they they were felt like they were sort of like forced to because everyone was like you have to watch the gay movie that is out right now and it's like no, they they should be allowed to not have to watch it and just and and then have a wealth of other options that speak to their interests too in terms of genre and other <clears throat> qualities. But instead, it's like no, you get this gay movie and so you must watch it and it, and then you have to talk about it and you know it's 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 frustrating. I think. Well, I I, I want to jump on that because I feel like the problem is like stop making stuff for us and just let us make things. Yes. Open yes. the door and let us create things. Because then you'll see, as we all know, we, there's nuances within our community. And it's like you don't have to just put the one gay character in there, the one lesbian character, or the one trans character. We all have friends. We all have queer friends. And you'll get the... That's what I like about Harlem. There's a variety of, of, of queer representation sort of in it. You know, um, and if you allow queer content creators to create their own things and tell their own stories and not say, this is going to be the one thing, we're giving you the opportunity to do the one thing, then we'll be in a better place to see the, the breadth and all the colors of the rainbow, if you will. Okay, the other thing for sure I was gonna bring up on this panel, because it's relevant, is Star Trek. Um, Cause like, I, I queerify every Star Trek episode that I watch, <laughs> and that's just how I roll. Um, but in Star Trek Strange New Worlds, there was one, I rewatched the season, there was one episode where um, a trans actor played a, a character. I don't believe that the character was, that they made, you know, that they overtly ascribed that to the character, but, um, spoiler alert, like, it seemed like this person was a good, noble person, but then it turned out they had, like, you know, a nefarious agenda. But the thing about this, because we, we all have to be really careful of, like, what happens when the queer character is the villain? Oops, like it's bad. Like it's like there's a history of um, just horrible, one-dimensional, stereotypical, offensive, you know, queer villains in Hollywood history. But what I loved about how they wrote the characters, um, you know, they were they made it a character whose agenda you understood. Do you know what I mean? Like it was a fun, cool, adventurous space. Pew, 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 like, let's, like, the space, gay space pirates is, like, 100% my jam. Like, if you have pirates in your show and they're gay and they're in outer space, I will watch every episode. Um, but I, what I loved about that was that, yeah, you know, a queer character can be anything. Can be the, 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 the lead, the best friend, the villain, 
it's, it's in how you approach the depth and dimensionality of that character. And I wonder if you guys could talk about, um, you all could talk about what, what leads to, are you, you've already touched on it, creators being put in the driver's seat of the project who are of the community and tell the story. But what are the things that lead to the kind of roles you want to see or play or be part of? I think that that has to do with just like good writing. And I know that sounds really simple, but like if you write something well and it is thoughtful, then you can really kind of put anyone in any position. And what is kind of frustrating is sometimes as an observer and watcher, I see people kind of put uh, non-white or, you know, cis, uh, non-cishet characters in this kind of like, no, there's like kind of a nobility complex where they want to showcase that like this person has no flaws, they kind of are like clean, you can't really criticize them and therefore you can't criticize the creator for it. And I get why that happens, there's fear, which is why it's important for people to tell their own stories. But playing a villain is the most fun you can have on camera. Like mm -hmm. it is so pleasurable to be someone who's got like, a motive that is purely their own or part, like, you know, if they're like, just to be a nerd, like, you know, lawful good, lawful evil, all of those different spectrums. <laughs> hey, some D&D &D fans, <laughs> ah, right on. Um, but yeah, so, and that, this is just coming as somebody who like, enjoys watching people get to be duplicitous and dastardly. And I think that like, it's, it's important to let everybody be bad. You know, you don't have to be the ambassador of your own like type or, or race or, or gender, like you get to be an individual, uh, or, or at least that's what I would hope for. It's easy for me to say because like, white women are the villains now, so. <laughs> and I think too, having more than one queer character in your, in your project allows the freedom for someone to be, you know, duplicitous and evil and not feel like, oh, the one gay character is the evil one or, oh, yeah, the yeah. one trans character. If there's more people who are, again, like, you know, somewhere on the, on the spectrum, then you can have that sort of freedom. No, I completely agree. Um, but, well, let's also talk about, we, we've, we've touched on it, and I, you know, I, I do want to keep returning to what do we want to see, but what's the thing you never want to see again in terms of queer characters or queer storylines? Like, I, I can't anymore with this. I just cannot. I don't want to see women kiss each other like this. <laughs> I hate when that happens. Yeah, um, I, on a similar vein, I'm really, um, intimacy coordinators really need to go through a master class in gay sex because some of the angles in the anal that I'm seeing um, are quite literally impossible. Um, <laughs> Aspiration. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, that's a really tough thing, though, um, because I think that anything, anything tropey or even like quote unquote stereotypical, is has a place as long as there's depth to it. You know, as long as you're, as long as it's sort of a built out around a well-rounded character. Like I, I think a lot of times, like I, I certainly got dinged for this of like. Oh, you know, all gay characters are hypersexualized um, in the media, which is a fair critique in, in some aspects. But I am writing from my own experience, and I have a lot of sex, and I think there's a way to do that <laughs> well. And I'm not gonna like, I'm not gonna pare back my own experience because it's been done poorly so often before, you know. Um, and I, I think like there's just a way to do all of the, anything that like. We, we are frustrated by because it's stereotypical can be written around and in, in given depth and reason um, and it's just like it, it's 
there's just a way to do it right. And so I, I'm open to seeing any of the things that have frustrated me before. I mean, I would like to see less death and less coming out. I think we've seen a lot of that. But again, like I, I hesitate to say like no more coming out stories because there's uh, there's plenty more. There's always going to be more like to do well in that space. I may be wading into something I shouldn't weigh in on being a white woman, but I'll just say like the trope of the um, parents um, of color who are judgmental and like I don't love that either. Like when it's a when it's a queer, when it's a character who's coming out, and quite often you see white parents as being we love you, Billy. It's great, you know. But like and those be the ones that don't say we love you, Billy. No, so exactly. And like so, like I, I often like if 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 the parents are on the scene, they're often like portrayed in a way that is not true to I don't know like. The, the families of queer people too exist and they are varied and like let's bring their bring a character's whole world make everybody complex and not just the parents that get one scene and are like well we don't understand this at all and we disown you like that like that starts to seem like a trope that we've maybe seen too many times Brian did you I'm sorry Jerry no go ahead oh but but so to Joel's point though like um if that's somebody's story and that's their experience right then that's that's the thing but also to to create that variety right because um I know some people with evil white mothers you know and so I just want to see more of that (laughs) exactly and we have I someone ready one. to play, right? I want representation for my people. Yeah, that, and that's actually what you're saying, is more evil white mothers, yeah. not less evil <laughs> mothers of color. Yeah. And so now we're getting to the thick of it. And so I think um, what the question is a, a complex question because there are so many experiences. So there's not something that I want to see less of. I just want to see more of it done well. And so it's like, but it's, but if it's your story, I also think that there should be, I'm excited to get to the place where we're allowed to have queer mediocrity, right? Where things are just able to just be like a regular story about queer people in the house or some shit like that. Because now we have to be like, Super, everything has to be super good and it has to be, because if it fails, then all of these other things are going to fail. And I, you know, somebody said no to me because this person tried to do it and they didn't succeed. And so it's just like, we need. <laughs> I, I talked about this at the panel yesterday, but when I was originally pitching Fire Island as a television show uh, before it became the movie, um, the, the amount of times that I got no and looking was brought up as a as a reason why and as it's so funny to say looking was a failure because it was three seasons in a movie which is pretty successful um (laughs) but the amount of networks that were like no you know nobody watched that show and so we're we're nervous this is too similar and it's like could not be any different other than it just having gay characters and so we are like i mean and it's like how many shows about white people in bars fail and yet we keep making them you know and and it's so it's 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 frustrating because we are so often like not um, you know given credit for our successes and then expected to bear the brunt of all our failures too. And it's really it's not it does not seem fair or just. At and all also, times. it's it's harder and harder now to make your own kind of like um, uh, IP. You know what I mean? Like people really want to something that already exists. And I imagine what's really difficult is like a lot of what already exists you know, entertains a very specific looking kind of person. Well, say you. (laughs) (laughs) 
it, literally, that's why, I mean, that's a big reason why, I, I mean, I love Jane Austen, but I, I don't know that Fire Island would have gotten made had it not been based on prejudice you know like that was really sticky and really like exciting to you know suits because like they were like oh people like that property already that there's that movie has been done a million times so let's do it one more time and like you know it, so it is it, exactly that like i guess we all have to like it's like wrapping the the dog medicine in a, in a piece of cheese like yes. <laughs> find gay sex and wrap it in an old classic um <laughs> You're on medicine. But the thing is, too, then, right, like, if you do that well and succeed at that thing, then it's, like, the one gay person that they're throwing all the projects at, mm -hmm. right? Like, they they got an Emmy nom or they're, you know, won an Emmy or whatever, and then they get to just make all of these decisions. And sometimes, and, and, and I'm like, that's great, because they do that with straight people all the time. <laughs> um, but then it's, like... We, sh we, there's so many diverse voices right now. This person is the voice of queerness because they wrote a good scene about a uh, queer, whatever. Um, and rightfully so, like you should, you should have some, some ownership and you definitely should be throwing money, but also there's other things that need to be made and other voices that need to be heard as well. And look at that success as, you know, we, this is why we should do more, that the audience right. does want to see this right. and that people are tired of the same old thing. And if you pay attention to the numbers, it's like, look how many people tuned into Pose who are not of the ballroom community because they've never seen anything like that before. So it's like there's a hunger for it. There's a taste for it. The queer audience in and of itself is growing, and, and there's trillions of dollars within, like, this industry. So this, this thing that they're doing where they're trying to use the, the same formula to exclude the voices that are actually going to bring them the, the, the revenue that they're desperately seeking, you know, it's, 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 it's confusing and it's frustrating. You make an excellent point about the chase for IP because I've been covering the industry now for two to three hundred years, and um, it frightens me because you know the New York Times did a study of um, the the books published in the last sixty years. Ninety-five percent of the books that they script, you know, fiction novels published by major houses. Ninety-five percent of it was white folks. So if we're, if we're doing a chase for IP, you can find similar stats in comic books. And, like, and I understand. And what I also see a lot of is, look at us. You know, We've cast a number of um, queer actors. Great. I love it. We have some queer directors. Great. I love it. Who's in charge of it? It's a white dude. A st cis, um, straight white dude is like the executive and the person who's like in charge of the film or the this TV show. And I'm like... Okay, I understand, but sometimes it's like there's a, a glass ceiling for like who can be in charge of the narrative, and they are giving it to the usual suspects. I think is am I wrong or are there no, more opportunities? No, that's uh, I, I actually talked about that on um, my last panel that uh, on screen definitely looks different, uh, more diverse. Uh, but but there is a there is a cap to that, right? Like you're on the set and you might not see people who look like you, even though everybody on the other side of the screen does, right? And then when the decision making happens, there's a person that you that that has a final say that sometimes isn't even an artist, that most of the time doesn't look like any of the people in the project, but somehow you know if they're the money makers there they're making a decision. And, and a lot of times, 
it's a business decision or what they think is a business decision, right? So when we're talking about stats and like proof and all of that, that's a business mind. That's not a creative or an artistic mind, which to some aspect is like, oh, okay, I understand. But also who are you putting around you so that that it's a balanced decision, right? That you can, we can talk about the stats, but we can also say, but hey, let's look at it from this angle. We still want to take a chance on this, which I think is the thing that's, that's probably lacking a little bit right now. When um, we were casting Conrad Ricamora as my love interest in Fire Island, we got pushback from the studio because at this point, Margaret Cho was involved and Bowen was attached. And they literally said to me, when I brought Conrad to them, they were like, it just feels like there's a lot of Asians in this movie. And like, wouldn't you want to spread the diversity around a little bit? Was the exact wording of it. And had I not had two Asian producers and an Asian director on this project, I don't know that I would have had the backup to really push through and say, no, I want my love interest to be Asian. And it was, it, it, I, I had never felt more insane. And then I, at the same time, more taken care of because I had that backup. And like, we talk so much about diversity on screen, but until we talk and push for diversity behind the scenes too, nothing's gonna change. Yeah. And it's very easy for me to sit here as someone who's been choosing to be on screen as opposed to the opposite. But as everyone is saying up here, like the, the thing I would urge is my opinion is that it is so important to become part of the team that does create and does know and does and does you know because as an actor your agency is very limited like it's the coolest job i love it so much but like you are like the last people put into the project you're the first ones to come out of the project the, the thing exists for years before you it lives for years after you're done with it and so to have any kind of like impact it is really important to become a writer, a director, a producer, all the things that like you don't necessarily see immediately. Um, yeah. Well, you know, the, a, th a question that you get asked all the time if you are that creator though is, is this relatable though? And what they mean is, is it relatable for cisgender white people? That's really what, because those rooms are, that's who's in those, mo for the, and I'm not, I don't mean to erase um, the executives or the green lighters or whoever who are not that. But for the most part, what people consider relatable is their, their, their experience and the people who have the power to green light and write the checks and you know, now you have the budget to go make the TV show or the movie. What they consider relatable is just not, they don't have the experience of the community. Is that often what you're finding? Or? Well, I, th I think the question more is, is not necessarily is it relatable because I think things that are so specific become universal and they are inherently yeah. relatable because you, you resonate with because you understand it. So the question really is, is this comfortable for our audiences? Is this going to be comfortable for the, the cis white people who we think are going to contribute the most amount of money and viewership or that we think our advertisers are going to think are the most valuable? And so that's really the question that, that these executives and, and money makers are asking. And the truth is they probably aren't, but they're going to get over it because they can relate to it. Yes. And then there's something that everybody's so attracted to the freedom of expression and the boundary breaking and the barrier breaking that queer people, you know, people of color do. And those are the stories that everybody wants the underdog, the hero who overcame the odds. So, yeah, they can relate to it. They, they want to, but you have to be okay with the discomfort that it's going to take for people to, to sort of break through the ideas they have about what they might watch. Yeah, I, I think like 
trusting people to find themselves in the hyper specific is really like again like i was talking about it earlier of like growing up queer like you you find you learn to find yourself in stories that aren't about you and straight people just aren't used to having to do that and you know and so it's going to take time for them to learn how to do that but like i think about like one of my favorite shows of the last like 10 years is insecure and not every joke in that show was for me not every reference in that show was for me and but i was okay with not getting it because I knew that it, I didn't feel talked down to. I didn't feel like she was like trying to explain everything about her culture and her community to me, but I was still able to enjoy it because it felt like, okay, this is someone's hyper-specific experience. I do not feel like I'm being talked down to and I can still find enjoyment from it and I can still relate to it in ways that because it's so specific. And I just feel like I would, I wish more people would do that rather than like fight to be like, okay, no, 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 we have to hold their hand and make sure that they understand every little in-joke and reference from your community. It's just so fresh. It's so annoying. I mean, I watched a show in the 90s called The Dinosaurs about a dinosaur family, and I got it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> I knew what was going on. No. So if, y'all, if I can do that, I think y'all can watch a show about some gay people, yeah. you know? <laughs> Everything can become a queer metaphor if you let it <laughs> and you make it, and that's what I do. Um, but were know, there dinosaurs behind the camera is what I want to <laughs> know. Was this real authentic yeah. dinosaur <laughs> representation? I will say puppets probably did tape Sesame Street. <laughs> I mean, I, let's be real. Yes. <laughs> well, so that's the thing. All of you, I'll, you know, to, eat, to get a ver even a version of the stories that you want to see and that you feel like, you know, would be cool to do and just fun and awesome for any number of reasons, the extra labor that is involved in the hand-holding and the ex explanation and the, like, it's exhausting, right? Like, can I, I'll, like, other folks, industry is hard. The industry is a hard place, but the amount of labor that I believe queer creators and artists have to do to make other feel comfortable, as you said, Brian, to like, I like, it's just, there's so much of it. Is it ever make you think, I wanna launch this whole industry into the sun or how do you, like, how do you handle that? I don't care to make anybody comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> Literally a rule of mine. And I feel like I have just been, I mean, being black, being queer, being a woman, growing up poor, like the social economic disparities. I have been so uncomfortable in my life. Do you think <laughs> I care to make people comfortable? And actually, I think people are extremely comfortable around me because of that, because I'm not going out of my way to make people comfortable. And I think when we do like press around Harlem and they're like, um, how does it feel to be leading? I don't care to be leading, no nothing about no queer people. <laughs> I'm just, I, and it's not like, it's not like I don't care about queer people because I do and I care about queer rights. But as soon as I'm put in a position where I am the voice of queer people or queer black people or queer black women, then I, they rob me of my own individuality. And so then it's like, well, why would you say that? That's not my experience. Or why would you say that? That's offensive to these people. Or why would you? And because this is how I feel. And so 
to maintain my autonomy, I can only speak from Jerry's perspective. And that has to be respected. And if the things I do happen to have uh, um, uh, an amazing or, or what kind of ripple effect in the queer community, then that's amazing. But I'm not setting myself up to be the voice of a bunch of people who are so nuanced, where the experience is so nuanced. And um, I've never heard anybody ask a white man, like, are you going to be the voice of white men now that you've done this movie? <laughs> it's like, even when they play characters that you're like, now you shouldn't even have done that. They still don't ask that question, right? Because I think sometimes um, white people have the gift to be transformative, right? Like, I don't, I played Ty. I don't ever have to do anything like that again, right? I could, but that's not my, you know, I'm thinking of more of different things and, and uh, different ways to expand. But as a queer black woman, it's a little bit more, like, you have to do a little bit more convincing for that. And so it's just, for me, I'm just like, I, I don't want to be the voice of a whole people. I do want to sometimes speak for people and energies who are not in the room. Like a lot of times I think people um, have misconceptions about, about poor people or about access, right? And so in rooms where people uh, speak freely about access, I do want to be a reminder that there are people who don't have access to basic needs, right? And so there are things that I want to speak up for because it's my experience, but I never want to say, I am the voice of this because there's just so much fucking nuance and there are so many people who need their voices heard as well that I just want to live in my autonomy and if that's an inspiration then it is and if it's not that's okay because I'm still living in my truth yeah, yeah. I, I feel like too when you get crowned the like representation for X community, you have to be really weary of like who's crowning you, you know? Because it robs you of agency. It really does. Like it's, I, I'm honored to represent gay Asian men. Like I am, I uh, truly. But at the same time, like it does, like all the things you were talking about, it robs you of agency sometimes as like an individual. And I will say that like, uh, I, uh, no one, like, no one hates me more than like certain gay Asian men because they've been told like that's your guy, that's your guy now, and it's like, no, like I don't need, I don't need that, I don't want that, I just want to make shit, you know, and like it's it's frustrating to have to now like show up and like feel like I have to be all these different things to people I don't even fucking know um, or care if they live or die, you know. Um, and just to be clear, I don't um, hate white men like on my like best days i am like put me in the mind of a mediocre white man and i can get anything done you know so just so you know it's not that's not what i'm saying i'm just using you as an example for all of the privileges you have okay that's all white men this is a safe space um <laughs> No, I completely, yeah, I mean, the monolith aspect of things. We, we, like, it's been five minutes since there wasn't maybe one token queer character who got killed off after two episodes. After, it, it's, it's two thin cisgender white women and they kiss because the producers thought that'd be hot to watch. And then, like, one of them 
Well, I had to, she had to leave town. She doesn't even get written off. Yeah. It's like they just, she just, she's just killed off. Or like, you know, that, that was five minutes ago, it feels like, culturally. So that monolith, like, the, you know, there's so much variety, difference, people who don't like each other, like beefs. Like, there's so much, people are not a monolith. And I, I feel like there's still so much caution. Am I wrong? Like, it's, it sounds like, do, you know, there, there are more opportunities, but there's still the gatekeeping is what it is. Those people are who they are. And there is a perception that, like, these people have to be role models. These characters have to be role models and kind of unassailable because we're afraid of people getting mad. And also, I think we have to, we also have to talk about a little bit, just like um, how uh, dangerous and violent it is to not see this type of representation, right? That's how people are like writing laws for people that they don't understand or they don't know. Like when you see things that you can't experience in your immediate reality, right? When you live in a place where there's only one black person in your town, I can't even believe there's towns that still exist like that, but there are, um, or no queer people, right? There's a sense of, of comfort that you can get with the job that we do to be able to turn a channel. There's so much access with media now, right? To be able to turn a channel and see people who look like you, which is why, you know, the, the old guard or whatever it is, um, why there is such a, there feels like there's such a fierce protection over white supremacy because there is so much in reality, so much diversity, right? There's, in reality, so much, um, so many diverse experiences. And so when we think about the gatekeepers, right, it's all a similar story that they're trying to uphold. And so there is, like, of course, there's going to be only three spots for the Black whatever, this person, or the gay this person, because that is not, you know, people are saying, like, you know, oh, well, you know, drag show, you can't go to a drag show because then it's going to... And it's just, like, oh, RuPaul's Drag Race has been on for how many seasons? There's not, you know, it's, it's, there's no danger in it, but, but, but that's the image that they're trying to, to, to uphold. And so it's essential. Like, the, the stuff that we're doing is essential. Being here is essential. Having these conversations is essential because there's a threat on the lives of queer people. There's a threat on the lives of women. There's a threat on the lives of black people. And those are so many different layers of, of realities that we have to live with. And so sometimes it does change a person's mind to, to have come in and, and, and see a, a, a movie on screen and there's like multiple Asian people on fucking Fire Island who are just having fun and like <laughs> kissing and shit. You know what I mean? Or a trans character. Like, it's just like, it, 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 to me, it's so, it's such a immediate and important thing that it, it's also, we have to talk about the fact that it is a little life and death right now, it feels like too. Yeah, because the fact is, is that like we are, most people in America will not meet someone like us, you know, or not maybe, actually, probably, yeah, that's true. The, like, you are probably the only trans person a lot of people in America know because of your show, because of the access you have. And that's humanizing, and that is how we change hearts and minds and, like, really, like, shift things. Like, storytelling is so powerful, and, like, 
I, I don't like people ask sometimes like they're like you realize you're over indexed actually in terms of representation in the media like there's actually in in comparison to how how much how many there actually are of, of queer people and LGBTQ people there's there's too much of it and it's like actually no like we actually it, it, it it's it's so necessary and life affirming. And the purpose of art anyway is to provoke thought. Like, I mean, we know we talk about the business side of this, and it is a business, and it's something that, you know, advertisers want to use to, like, you know, keep, keep eyes on the screen, keep money in their pockets, keep people buying things. Yes, that is definitely part of it, but we're also artists, and that's the purpose of art is to get you to see things, is to get you to question the ideas that you have, is to get you to make up an idea about something, is to get you to see, like, what is your voice? How do you feel about something? And if something makes you uncomfortable, great. Talk about it. Let's, let's have a dialogue about it. That's how we connect as people. That's how we connect with the world around us. And it's, it's part of it. So to try to make things that are, is more palatable or that make people not think or that make people not feel something is like the antithesis of like why we even do what we do in the first place, you know? Yeah, I, this, I feel very strongly about the life and death aspect of it and not just because um, the human rights of trans people, queer people, are under siege, and you know, I just want to point that out that in the the, the moment that we're living in, they are like the the active campaign of it, it is life or death, like quite literally, but also you know, like for the for the young people coming up, not seeing yourself is a form of violence. And I have talked to you know, I've done a fair amount of reporting on this, and I, I'll never forget someone telling me about a, a, a story with queer characters who were, you know, like middle-aged, had been together for a while, a young person telling me, I didn't know that was possible because I'd never seen, like, an older gay couple just that had been together for a long time. And I'm like, that breaks my heart, and it makes me furious. Because speaking of, you know, there are people, stories about people out there dating or whatever, but, like, also the representation of just, like, boring middle-aged people. Like, you know what I mean? My, like... If you've never seen yourself in a host of different situations, you can't imagine yourself into the world in some ways. And in that art that you're speaking of, that connection, that thought that we're trying to provoke to some degree is that we see you and you matter. You exist. And I think when people don't see that, the message they get is I don't matter and the world doesn't need me or want me. And I, um, the mental health effects of that on people of all ages in the queer communities is real still. Um, so that's my soapbox part, sorry, I did, had to say it. Um, I think we're gonna take audience questions. If we could, we're gonna have a microphone and um, if folks, he's, yeah, let's turn it on. Hi. <laughs> Hi, I appreciate what you uh, told and uh, what you have done. Uh, I would like to critic the organizers for not having a Hispanic person in the panel. I think it's important, it's part of the queer stories we want to see. And I would like to go deep in what you already told about the attacks uh, to transgender, especially Brian, you show supposed to be in Texas, mm -hmm. <laughs> and they recently banned uh, hormone therapy. Yes. I want to know your thoughts about it. It's dangerous to do that. People's lives are literally in danger. People, um, who, whether they're using, the, like, and like, I want everybody to know, like, it's a coordinated 
effort attack. It's systematic. There's groups that are behind this effort um, who are, like, getting candidates into positions to, like, do these sorts of things, which is all about, you know, keeping political power, but lives are at stake because of it. Um, but there's organizations like the Human Rights Campaign, which I'm on the board of directors. There's a lot of boots-on-the-grounds organizations like Equality Texas who are doing what they need to do, like filing lawsuits against these... Because they're unconstitutional. These, these medical health bans, they're, they're unconstitutional. You can't... You can't rate, I mean, they're doing it, they're writing it, they're putting it in there, but it, it's not necessarily going to stand. But please, if you are trans or not, please use your voice. Please advocate against this. They, that's the one thing they can't take from us is our voice. And we can only speak so much as a community. And they'll just say, oh, that's just them. That's just what they want. But if other people are saying, no, this is wrong, this is wrong across the board, and it's going to affect me because whatever policies they enact upon us, they can enact upon you, right? It's just like... Um, Hormone prescriptions are available, and you know, especially for uh, for young people, hormone blockers. So there's a whole litany of um, of standards of care that you have to go through before you even get access to care. Gender affirming care for young people is usually just saying that's the pronoun you want to use. We're going to use that pronoun. That's the name you want to use. We're going to use it. That's the kind of clothes you want. That's gender affirming care for young people. And then when they get to a certain age, after they have their therapy and things like that. Then they can, you know, talk about with their parents and with the, the, the prescribers on whether or not they want to try hormone blockers. But there's a process involved in here that a lot of these people who are trying to do the fear mongering are like purposely overlooking. Right. So these puberty blockers have already been on the market for years for people who are going to puberty too soon. And there's, they've, they've been proven to be effective. The medical community uh, agrees with this. They, they know this. And if that's something they want to prescribe for their children who are not trans, they can prescribe that. But in the law that they're trying to pass now, they're saying, well, if you're trans, then you can't use it. Right. So it's it's unconstitutional and it's going to be stricken down, but it won't be stricken down if enough people aren't showing up at these hearings, if enough people aren't going to these school board meetings because they're working on a local level to kind of build up their base. So please participate in your community uh, politics. Please communicate. I mean, uh, participate in your state uh, policies, because that's the only way to really stop this, because it's, it's an unmitigated, coordinated attack that I, also, I do not agree with and that it is going to cause the uh, demise of a lot of beautiful families. People are going to have to leave the states, they're going to have to find places to go, or they're, they're going to die. Thank you. Hey guys, the question I want to ask, and uh, right before I ask this, I want to point out Jerry, like when I was started watching Harlem, which just popped up during uh, Christmas 2021 on my prom and I was like what is this and I saw a trailer I'm like this looks good I started watching I just could not stop and could not stop and the funny thing is when I was watching this show I realized I had no black lesbian representation ever in my life I couldn't even recall a character that I had ever seen and your character talks about women like my buddy Malik talks about women and I was just thinking, I was like, she talks about women like Malik. And I was like, I was like, I was like, why don't I understand this? Like, I, why can't? And then I was thinking, I have no black lesbian representation until now from this show. And it's going on 2022 when I started watching it. But anyway, great show and love the cliffhanger, like I told you a couple of days ago. But what I want to ask each and every one of y'all, how do you see in Hollywood where a white gay character is taken and handled compared to like black Asian, you know, how do you see any difference in how they handle it? Like what they want to do with the character or change it or anything is, are they given more, more, um, handling of care or more accolades or, or is it about the same? 
it's sort of tough because now you're getting really into the minutia because the, there's not a lot of gay representation, period. And then to like then break it down even further uh, into the sub groups, too, it is like it's it's tough to parse out. I mean, like in general, I think like white characters are given just in general across the board more agency and more depth and like or seen that way anyways or lauded that way. Um, but like. Yeah, I don't know. That's really. No, I, I think I think you kind of hit it. There's just overall in 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 how representation is happening, white people do have more humanity because there's more white people behind the storytelling, and so they can see more of the humanity. And even if the person who's writing the character isn't gay themselves, they understand like navigating the world as a as a white man, and so they can really kind of dig into it and get into like the granular level issues that they're having. You get this fully presented person where if they're trying to even thinking about writing a black uh, gay character they don't know that much about the culture that would inform how that person is navigating the world. So you will get maybe a flat character who is in service of, or, you know, like the, the partner of the white character. You know what I mean? So, but do they, do they reach out and say, hey, we need the story. Like, can you sit around this panel and tell us your experiences? Or just like a, like, like, did you write for Fire Island? Yeah, I wrote it, yeah. Okay, so that's different. Like, yeah. but if you have white writers, how do you... Do they ever say, sit down? Because I remember on the Jeffersons, Marla Gibbs would hear all the white men talking. And she's like, what are y'all talking about? And she'd sit down at the table. And she's like, that's not the way it goes down with black folks. And she started giving her input with Norman Lear and stuff. And so that helped change, like, how, you know. And she did that unpaid. Like, how how often have you had to change a liner, like, give input for free? There's, (laughs) yeah. It also boils down to sometimes, like, it's like, I know this is free, but if I don't say this, right. then it's I'm going to look crazy. Yeah, and it's coming out of my mouth. Yes, and so it has to be that. But to your original uh, question, it's, for me, I feel like where we, we where, where I see where gay white men are, and a part of it gives me, like, a little bit of hope or it tells me where we can go, right? Because now you see more gay white men who are coupled, who have been coupled for a long time, who have a kid, who have adopted a kid. Sometimes they choose a little Asian girl or some shit like that. They don't talk about the fact that she's Asian. Um, Like Modern Family. But then then it's like, oh, so we can see a, a a family or a secular family structure or whatever where um, it's just a family. It's just about a family. You, This person happens to have two dads and they've been together for a long time and it's not really always about the queerness and stuff like that. And right now, we don't have that with, like, lesbians. We don't have that with, uh, you know, men. If it's, if it's gay, a gay male couple... At least one of them cannot be white, but one of them has to be white right yeah. now. And right so, there. This is exactly that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have talked to so many actors who are like, let's do diversity. Let's do a diversity and have <laughs> a gay a couple. Diversity. And they will not have two black characters together. Mm-hmm. They will not have two Asian. Like, it's like, no, that's too... How is that too much? Well, because then, much? then it becomes a black show. Yeah. So yeah. If you, you know what I mean? Or then it becomes an Asian show. So yeah. if you have too many of... A, a diversity, then it becomes a diversity show, which is not necessarily true because we have you know we have friends who are of you know different race. We have more than one. I have more than one white friend. You know what I mean? So <laughs> I didn't know you knew white people. I know two girls. Very generous. 
I just made two yesterday, yeah. right, girl? Yeah. <laughs> 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 well, thank you. I mean, but thank that's, you. that's that's the pattern, though, right? It's like we're gonna have a gay couple. It's gonna be a cisgender white man, and then that person's male partner, who we'll see for one, two scenes, two scenes per season, with a little peck on the lip, like a like tiny little peck on the cheek. Mm -hmm. Like there's like I'm like okay, that's some. Um, uh, representation, sure. Did you want to say something, Joel? No, no, I was just looking. Yes. Hi. Don't be afraid. Hi. Oh, the I'm mic not, doesn't not. blow up only on Saturday. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God! Was... <laughs> back away! Back away! Okay. Uh, so, in general, like we've been talking about, it seems like there's this reticence from a lot of audiences to kind of experience new things that aren't previously based on a classic or, you know, a, a pre-existing property, and. Um, like you were saying earlier about Insecure, you don't have to be in on everything to like something or enjoy it. So what do you see as like a way forward of trying to get people to be more open to things that are more wholly original, not previously based on something without having to do all of that heavy lifting or catering to try and make them understand every single little thing. Write a horror movie. I was literally about to say the same thing. <laughs> Honestly. Yeah. That, Honestly. Is the, that is the space. Mid-budget horror is where the original ideas are living and succeeding right now. And I think like Jordan Peele is like a perfect example of this. And like his, like all of his movies, but even movies that came out this year, like Megan, Smile, like the, the Barbarian. Barbarian. Like, those are like so such original, great ideas. And like all of them did so well and, and audiences resonate with audiences in such an, an interesting way. I think like horror is a really powerful medium right now. And we all, more queer people need to make ho queer horror movies, you know, because our lives are scary. Um, so. They also make a shit ton of money. And yeah. They make them for very little. Exactly. They make a shit ton of money and, and nobody respects them. And it's also, the, it's, it's one of the few places where they're, where the industry is allowing people to cast relative unknowns and yeah. leads too. Like that's like such, still such a huge problem is like, I want to cast my next movie, like I want to cast a, my uh, love interest as like a per, another person of color, but they're like, it has to be a name. And it's like, well, we cannot create names unless we give people opportunities. And it's like, it's this weird, like secular thing where it's like, you have to be a name to get cast in this movie, but in order to get cast in this movie, you have to be a name. It's like all these yes. like crazy things. And so, yeah, horror, that's it. Good call. <laughs> also, please like me, one of my favorite things ever. One You're of the amazing. best things I've ever done. Hi. Um, second on horror. Horror is incredible. Um, also, Moonface was probably one of my oh, wow. favorite things I've I've heard in the audio space. If you've not heard it, it's an incredible Thank story so and also very specific and had nothing to do with the community I belong in. But I'm a producer and I want to know and I, I'm in my queer community, but obviously I'm so privileged to work with incredible creators of color and I want to support them as best as I can in those rooms that I have more access in. So what are some things you wish producers were bringing into the room with them to really like represent you in the best way and what do you want us yelling at these white men because we have some privilege to do so. Don't change the idea. Yes. And then bring a black person with I you. I was about to say, bring me. <laughs> bring the Asian yeah. with you. <laughs> bring them in the room. Because we, I mean like, we can advocate for things in a way maybe you can't, you know, but we won't be able to get into the room unless you bring us into, into the space. So I mean, that's the, the best way to do it is to, you know, co-produce with somebody, bring somebody else on, give them opportunity. And that helps us also, after that project, have some leeway into the next thing because we were co-producers on this thing with you. So it's really about bringing the other people into the, into the room with you where, when, when you're when able you can, to. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
Yeah, I mean, make it, honestly, it has to be a deal breaker. We are, you know, this is going to be the director. This is going to be like, you know, you have to, it's, it's a fight and the community is fighting, but the, if, if people want to really be an ally, they have to have skin in the game and really fight and make, fight in ways, again, that word discomfort. It might be uncomfortable and you might, you might not, you might walk out of some rooms without, without the green light, but you fought, you know? Uh, yeah, thank you everyone for this amazing panel. Um, I want to ask, um, how do you balance creating stories that center queer joy while the world is crumbling around us? That's an amazing question. I feel like, and I want everybody to jump in here, the only way to stop the cratering is with the joy and showing the joy to showing that even in the midst of all of this horrible shit, we are still celebrating, we are still finding each other, we're still beautiful, we're still fabulous. This is when we need the joy the most. They want to see us crumble. They yes. want to see us fall. Yes. They want to see us sad and despondent, and we can't give into that. And you know, it's it's an act of def it's an act of defiance yes. to be joyful yes. right now. Yes. yes. And my, one of my favorite books, uh, Pleasure Activism, Adrienne Marie Brown, uh, and she talks about like the essential nature of finding pleasure in activism. And I think we, it's like, we are so used to like the burnout culture, right? You fight, you fight, you fight, then you burn out and you don't want to fight anymore. Then the next people take on the load and they fight and they fight. But it's like the fight truly is like still going to those drag shows. It's still dressing up. It's still being you. It's still being happy and excited. And for me, being accessible, right? And so I have to have a good time. Like that's my boundary is that like, yeah, I'm going to talk my shit and I'm going to tell you what we need to do, but I also have to be having a good time for my mental health because <laughs> then I spiral and then I need somebody to come on to help me in order to help the, the cause. And now it's just, what are, what are right. we actually doing? And so I think joy is the most important part. And I think finding it outside of June is... <laughs> critical. Yeah. Critical. Like, Y'all know we can have fun yeah. on July 2nd. Oh, okay. Yeah. We don't have to wait, but... When, yeah. when I do ketamine in August, it's protest. <laughs> um, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, um, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> who cares? You know, who fucking cares, right? <laughs> Me. Uh, I don't. No, but I, I think that, like, you know, even beyond the things we're talking about today, the world is ending in such a slow but spectacular fashion like it feels really scary but I something that my therapist said to me was that the the outside doesn't have to match the inside and it's very easy to sort of say that to not internalize all of these things and it's important to be proactive and to to be you know fighting against and fighting back but yeah it prioritize your mental health you know treat yourself and the world is ending because a new world is starting, okay? Yes. We are, like, truly having to... The, the, the old way of doing things is dying, which is why it's so important for us to realize that, like, there's not, like, an end and then we're on a precipice and we're in the abyss of an end. No, there are new things happening. So this is also such a great opportunity to, like, retrain our brains to newness, to, to think about actually what we need and what we're actually advocating for and, like, the, the basis of humanness, right? And so I think this is 
it can be a depressing time, but I always think an obstacle is an uh, is an opportunity for for something new to to um, emerge. And I am excited for whatever is on the other side of this, and for us to be like more aware, you know, more people are voting, right? More people are thinking about different things that we didn't think about because now, like, lives are in danger. And so this is such a wonderful opportunity to shift the culture in a real way on a large, large scale. And so thinking about what kind of person you want to be, what kind of advocate you want to be, what kind of artist you want to be is really important to the, in this time because, like, we're really... And on a on a on another level, we're transitioning from the 3D to the 5D. Alert. But that's uh, something else. A conversation we can have after this. Um, but it's such Keep a spectacular time. Mm -hmm. That's all I have to say. Thank you for the wonderful questions, everyone, and thank you for coming. Thank you to these panelists. You guys are amazing. Thank you. You have been listening to the TV Campfire podcast, hosted by ATX TV co-founders Emily Gibson and Caitlin McFarland, and produced by Jennifer Morgan. This conversation was recorded live at ATX TV Festival Season 12 in Austin, Texas, between June 1st and 4th, 2023. For more information on the festival and becoming an ATX TV member, follow us at ATX Festival or visit atxfestival.com.